Okay, very excited to be joined back in here in studio, the Juno studio, uh, with Representative James Kaufman. How are you doing? Oh, great. Hello, everybody. Glad, glad, glad you could make it in. Um, I can apologize. Yesterday, we had a little bit of a scheduling issue, my fault. So you were you were here listening to another one, <laughs> and you, I thought it was 6.30, and it was my mistake, so I'm glad you Yeah, did. well, you know, it's tough. Uh, the, this whole place and in the legislature and anybody working with it, keeping things scheduled is a, is a challenge. I mean, you really have to have like when you know. I wish I had. I always kind of joke. I wish I had like a like a assistant or somebody to just do, deal with my emails and my schedule because probably you even get more than me. I get so many emails and maybe ten fifteen percent. I really have to like maybe twenty percent. I really have to respond to. But then there's a bunch of them that I just need to like do deal with something small or some issue or some bill or something. And I know it's a crazy situational awareness you have to maintain. Um, it, you know when you. You get in the public sphere um, way different than I was as a retiree, just kind of enjoying life at home. Yeah, so I want to talk about legislature, but first I want to kind of go back. You ran in 2020 um, against Jennifer Johnston, who was the, the finance co-chair, so kind of a big position in leadership. And you kind of came out of, for me at least, kind of came out of nowhere. I, you hadn't run before. I think a lot of folks hadn't heard of you. So maybe talk about your back. I know you were in oil and gas, your background, and then why you decided to you know run for the legislature and, and challenge you know the finance co-chair, which is a pretty big position. Yeah, well, uh, I retired uh, from BP in 2017. Uh, I was uh, their projects quality manager, so my job, um, it, you know, going way back, I've, I've ha- had a long involvement in, in project quality management, is to make sure that what we build actually serves the purpose and it gets built at the best you know best cost and uh, produces the best results. So I retired in 17 and got more and more active in the community, you know, community councils and Anchorage Halo, uh, which is a homeowners uh, association on the hillside, and started helping with campaigns. And then it came to a point where, and it was really pretty amazing to experience, where uh, people came to the house and were sitting around the dining room table. Uh, mm-hmm. Nancy and I were sitting there and they were saying, well, you should run. You, you helped with, uh, I think, Christine Hill's campaign, right, for assembly? I helped with just about anybody that was right of center. So Christine Hill's campaign and, and she, she others. Was, that was really close. I mean, that was a handful of votes. I mean, I think it was like 100 and some votes out of 10,000 votes Yeah, she it, lost by. It was very close. Yeah, it was really tight. Um, 180 or something rings a bell um, on that. But what I was doing with, with candidates that I thought would would take us more in the right direction than, than the, the incumbents at the time. Um, I just kind of lent project management skills to it because campaigns are really just projects. Mm-hmm. Um, another way to look at them, they're a business that you have to start up and then run to the ground, you know, all in a very short period of time. So I just lent those skills to uh, anybody that I thought might be able to help. So, so you'd been in a lot, you'd moved to Alaska with BP, right? Yeah. They transferred me up uh, in 2011. And, and so I, Finished up my career uh, in Alaska, um, and then when it came time to retire, they had a move-out package for me. But so you, uh, you kind of missed the Hillcorp deal. I mean, by a couple of years, and I, that was fine. Um, I, I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't need to stick around. And I, as I joked with my supervisor at the time I was retiring, I said, "If I don't retire soon, I won't be able to say I did it early." And mm. uh, it, yeah, you're pretty. I mean, you seem pretty healthy. You're pretty young. I mean, you, yeah, I'm aging quickly in this place, though. So. That's <laughs> but, that's that's true. Yeah. 
Well, uh, where are you from? What's your back? Where are you from? What? You didn't have to agree with me so readily. Oh, you do it. No, you do it. This the stress of this play. I'm sure you've, yeah. you've been in two years now and your second year and you can just, you see it. I mean, uh, yeah. the impact it has on people and the stress and kind of all the. It's challenging. Anybody that, that thinks this stuff is easy, um, it, especially if you try, if you're trying to do it well, you know, then it, you really feel it. But yeah, so re- retired. And then um, next thing I know, I, you know, folks started talking to me that I should run. And I, I had made uh, associations, connections, uh, friendships with people, you know, that knew a thing or two about campaigning. And then I went, I also took some training, you know, because being a project guy, you always want to know what you're doing if you're going to jump into something. So I took a week of training and kind of learned some of the business and, and basics of running a campaign. And, and that it was very helpful. Um, and mostly it was uh, my wife, Nancy, and I, you know, she manned the, most of the phones and I, I hit doors and it was pretty much a grassroots campaign, but we did very well. Also a pretty challenging time with the COVID and some people, you know, some candidates didn't want to go to doors. Others did. Mm-hmm. I was actually running. I'd, I had gotten out. I was doing a petition candidacy over the summer mm-hmm. for the Senate and I ended up dropping out because of a kind of a long story with one of the other people in the race, but I was knocking doors and you know, you, you hit a door and some, most people, if you you're outside, you back up, but once in a while, somebody would freak out and didn't want to talk to you. But for the most part, I think it was, it was fine, but some candidates wouldn't go door to door, which I think hurt, you know, hurt them. Mm-hmm. Well, I did. Um, and, and, uh, it, I think it's critical. Um, and it, it's just something I do no matter what, but, uh, there was a few incidents, but generally I found that as long as you were just courteous and, and, you know, didn't close in on people too much, that at least the people I was talking to, they were, you know, a lot of them were glad to have somebody come by the door I, and say hi. I got a lot of that. People like, oh, wow, somebody's here. Yeah. How are you? <laughs> and Come in. And uh, the hillside, uh, it's not a real easy district to walk, right? You've got these massive yards and long driveways and bears and all that sort of stuff. So um, a lot of people were just surprised anybody would even do it. Um, you know, it's been a while since anybody. Yeah, some of the more, you know, Midtown or even South Anchorage districts, it's, you can just hit a city, you know, you get a block of houses and you can, you can knock them 50 or 60 or 70 out in a day, a long day. But some of these hillside ones, yeah, it's uh yeah, you know, almost a car. It's a little easier to get somebody helping you on some of those, especially those, you know, quarter mile between each house driveways. Yeah. The hybrid kind of uh, door driving, knocking and, and yeah. So we tried everything at one point. I even tried starting up high on the hill and using a bicycle and working my way down. <laughs> <laughs> I was anything that worked, you know? So when you got into it, um, you know, your race was one of the ones at the time, I think the Giesel race, some of the Senate races, um, your race was one of the ones people are really watching. Mm-hmm. Did you have a set? I mean, did you have a sense of your first time running for office did you, before the primary? Did you have a sense of it or how, how did you kind of get, how'd you feel before the election? Well, uh, so running for the primary, um, I felt pretty darn solid because the, the responses I was getting at the doors was was great. I mean, it, it was, was really, it, it propelled me. Um, you get, uh, there's a lot of stress in running a campaign. Um, and, but getting out and doing doors, it turned out that that was one of the things that kind of like, Oh, this is good. It feels just like it, you know, it's social, it's progress. You can feel yourself getting something done and the responses were good. So I felt like we were going to have good results on election night. We ended up with, it was a three to one, uh, victory. It was right about 2575 uh, in the Republican mm-hmm. primary in that race, give or take uh, somewhere. And then, of course, with 
the way that works. So that's that first count is those who have voted, um, you know, on the day of the election. And then you have to wait for all the other mail-in ballots and all, all that, you know, the uh, absentees to get counted. Which were, which were a lot with the COVID situation. A lot of folks voted absentees, so. A lot. And so when that was all said and done, uh, the, the three-to-one uh, diminished down to about a two-to-one. And so still a, a pretty strong win. Big victory, especially over, you know, like I said, the finance co-chair, who was a right. person of kind of a lot of power, a lot of influence over the money and the budget. When So when you, you, you know, one of your issues was was her caucusing with the some of the democrats and, and the kind of the coalition did you feel like when you got here you you probably something you that's something you probably couldn't do did you feel like that i mean that i know it was a month of organizing did you think about that was that like a consideration no it was a, a promise i i had i had some pretty simple core promises i said i would run as a republican and and i would you know stay and function as one um and that uh and then Beyond that, I, I didn't promise any specific outcome on a PFD. I, I said, you know, I think we had kind of managed our way into a corner on, on uh, being able to pay a dividend um, and that I would use basically my management skills to try and, and improve things down here. So that was that's what I, I promised, and uh, people responded to it greatly. And the, the outcome is part of the reason why I ran, is I, I was just afraid that we were going to go in, in the wrong direction i i from being active in the community i knew uh, people were upset and i was afraid that they just wouldn't turn out or or they would you know that, that it just wouldn't go well um for a a more conservative uh perspective on the hillside so now this year the capital's open uh people are coming and going last year your first year in juno it was not open because of covid what's it like now compared to your first year first session Two completely different years. I, I guess you couldn't have as different a year a, as we did. So, um, a little closer to the mic. If you thanks. Uh, so the, uh, you know, the first year, what was bad about it was, you know, it, it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't like a real year would be with people coming and going. So you miss all that experience. You know, the the whole activity of the Capitol building. But what it gave those of us who were in our first term, first year, uh, time to learn a, a bit more to use the. And it used the, uh, the quietness of the capital as a, a, pl- a time, an opportunity to learn. So it was great for that and really helped. And then, of course, this year, now you have more people coming through. So you're getting more of that kind of retail level, you know, you, you get elected by doing doors. And then when you're in the capital, mm-hmm. people are doing doors back. And so uh, it's amazing the range of, of uh, people that you can have and the topics you're discussing all in, you know, in, in a couple of hours, you can have everything from somebody talking to you about micronuclear reactors to, to fish or whatever. You know, it's, it's pretty interesting. I think I've heard people describe it as to be a good legislator, you have to know a little bit about a lot of things. But you can't know too much because then you're, like, get you mired, in. mired in something. Yeah, dig in too deep. Yeah, and I've always, um, always kind of liked just, you know, I, I was one of those geeky kids that read encyclopedias and stuff just because I, I like you know, knowing something about a lot of things and it can, it really helps you though, if you need to jump on something and dig deep because it gives you that starter knowledge. Do you, do you, uh, so you have the background in the oil industry and a lot of what we deal, deal with in the legislature, what they deal with is, is oil taxes and oil issues and got, you know, development and, uh, only a few people, I mean, like Senator Machiki, um, Representative McKay, um, had worked in the oil industry, but there's not a ton of people 
in the legislature who work directly in the oil industry and, and you did for a long time. So right. do you, do you, um, when you see things come up or topics discussed, oil and gas, do you feel like you have a little more insight into it than other people who might, might not really have any insight into it for their experience working? In a unique way, um, remember in the oil business, it's such a, a complex industry that people are in it in different, you know, in different focus areas. So you may deal with subsurface, you know, drilling, et cetera, those things. Now, my specialty was in, in building the equipment that made all that possible. So I come at things from a strong background in con- construction, project management, manufacturing um, at one point in in time, I managed supply chain quality, and so I was traveling to many different suppliers and vendors, including globally. You know, so sometimes did, did you work before Alaska? Did you work overseas at all, or just in Lower Forty Eight? Well, uh, in my career on the projects I've been on, I've there's been times when I dealt with, like I said, a global supply chain. So I would go to Korea uh, to to check in with some fabricators and look at what they're doing and work with them maybe to improve, or suppliers in Japan or in Germany, Italy. And so there, uh, that was when I was working for BP down in, you know, in the lower 48. I was on a deep water development program where we were doing uh, multiple offshore platforms at the same time. Did you have any involvement in the deep water horizon thing? Or? No, it, except, to, you know, it, I was on a refining project at that time. It was an interesting project, about $8 billion worth of refinery project that I, I was the quality manager on. And uh, so I was... I was busy doing that when, when all of that occurred. So. That was wild. I mean, I just saw, I saw that movie came out years ago. Have you seen the movie? It's no, it's too close. You know, yeah, it, it's it was, thinking about that. It's over 2009. I think it seems like it was not that long ago, but it's been like 12 years. Yeah. You know, well, time flies. So what, um, one of the things I, I noticed recently, you've introduced this bill. That's a kind of a bigger look at the state's uh, departments and, functions and that's been kind of talked about by some folks and i think it's sounds like you've been working on that for a while so what, what's describe that bill and what you're trying to accomplish well, well um that bill the executive budget act and i'm getting to a point where i start to jumble the numbers hb 376 uh the short title is strategic plans for state agencies and what it's designed to do is to update our the executive budget act sometimes we call it the eba just for short so to update the EBA so that we're on more of a performance management basis, um, so that we're, we're, we're trying to drive uh, performance relative to a four-year strategic plan. And so the four-year plan is linked it's to the cadence of, of the governor's election. So the governor comes in, has a four-year strategic plan, and then the agency that the agencies are, are operating to, and then with... Uh, like one-year performance plans, and then, of course, the regular budgeting information. Isn't that kind of, in a lot of ways, the problem we're plagued with, with whether it's the gas line or any any of the ferry system or infrastructure? You get a governor who has one idea about something, whether it be Murkowski, one, one term, or Palin, who was half a term, and then Parnell, you know, going back to even Knowles, he was two terms. But when it's one term... All these things happen. You look at you look at you know the differences between Walker and, and Parnell on the get and Palin on the get, even Murkowski. Same with the ferry system. That seems to be one of the big challenges. Is you have like you said four years, and then it could be a whole new guy or woman who just has a whole different approach to something, and then all the work that was done before kind of just 
because these people in the state agencies, I mean, a lot of them stay there a long time. Right. A governor stay there for four years or maybe eight years. But we've only had, I think, two Knowles. And before that, I think it was um, Hammond. So who were, who were the two terms? Well, it's it's true that that's a that's a built in limitation of the system. Right. I mean, to, to prevent somebody from becoming too powerful, you you make sure that they have a limited term and sometimes like, they only get one like Putin he's been there <laughs> 22 yeah yeah if you want somebody that is really dug in that that's what you get so but with our system uh you know so we're we're swapping somebody out every four years or every eight depending on on how well they succeed at the ballot box but what is possible is to improve the systems uh below that layer and you do it by getting aligned on a, a strategic management plan type concept um, basically, quality management and government. It, it's not something that's like a brand new idea. This is something that uh, every good company, uh, if you like a Toyota and you think it's built great and it lasts forever, the reason why is their quality management program and their operational management system that keeps them uh, very efficient and focused. So no matter what the product is, they're they're managing as as well as can be and they're improving themselves constantly to keep delivering value. Um, it's possible to get those processes in government. And then it, it still matters who's at the top, but they're coming in on a system that's aligned to deliver more performance at lower cost. You know, one thing I've said, and I think this is, is true, compared, and I, I, I've always, get some, you know, some people will scream, we've got to run it like a business. Well, I mean, it's not a business. It's, no. But there is some applications or some things in business um, you know, wh- whether it be incentives kind of or efficiencies. And I, I know we've all heard the stories where if you don't spend the, you know, if you don't hit your budget, then mm-hmm. you, you don't you actually don't, in, in many cases, you, you, you don't um, get a benefit from that. You actually lose because then you're going to get, get a lower budget the next year. So I've always thought about if you can find a way to save some money, maybe, maybe there's a, a, a pay incentive or maybe there's some incentive for the department, but it shouldn't be a, a disincentive to where if you spend 10% or 5% less, you lose that the next year. Right. Well, there's incentives are interesting. Uh, but before we go there, um, I agree when, if someone were to tell me, Hey, uh, you can't run government like a business. I, I agree. But what I would say is you can be a little bit more business like, mm-hmm. and you can use, use best practices and try and, and bake them into how we're doing what we're doing. And that can include just uh, maybe incentives or, where you create feedback loops so that people actually know the value of what they're doing or what they're not doing. Um, we introduced a bill and it's over in the Senate. Now we actually passed it out of the house unanimously and what it is, it's a cycle uh, where we already have lists of documents um, that are produced reports, publications, et cetera. And now every two years that'll be reviewed and those that are no longer needed or can be consolidated with others. Um, it the list will, a recommendation will be made that, hey, we can reduce these. We don't need to do this. So uh, just adding that process in there, suddenly we can reduce maybe publications that we're producing that we don't need. Little things like that. There's, you, there's so many r- reports, and we, you know, I do this Alaska political report, which is a separate business from the landmine, but we, a lot of what we do is based on we, we review reports and go through things that, that are produced that I feel like sometimes nobody looks at, the people who made them, but they're oftentimes really good information. And you have to go through there and, you know, read them. And sometimes they're 50 or 100 or hundreds of pages. And I just always think, man, somebody had to put these things together. It's probably a ton of work. Right. Um, but there's valuable information in some of those that we go and find and, and share with people that I think uh, are interested in the information, but maybe don't want to spend two hours or 
you know, three hours going through and trying to figure out. Right. Well, it's not to eliminate, it's to consolidate or, or reduce the volume of it. So, mm-hmm. um, so, you know, sometimes these things are built up over time and you get this requirement and that requirement because the legislature is churning out requirements and nobody's had a chance to look at it and say, wow, we could really consolidate this. And so every two years, the governor recommends a bill and says, hey, we can consolidate this report and that report with this, or we're going to put this up online and we're, we don't need to uh, publish a glossy, you know, four-color magazine for it. We can put it <laughs> online. Well, you know, whatever. Uh, I, I, I've done a few podcasts with um, my, my, my kind of buddy and, and mentor, Paul Johnson. He's the chair of the economics department at UAA, and he's Australian. Mm-hmm. And he told me this funny story many, many years ago, and I always kind of bring it up that he was working after he got his PhD in economics, he was working for the Australian Treasury. And his boss at the time told him there was a meeting and, and he had this report and the boss was kind of telling him in detail how to prepare the report and how it should look and where the staple goes and where how the binder fit and all these things. And and he thought he was joking. <laughs> like he thought it was a joke until he realized it wasn't a joke. Yeah. And it was so much more, I mean, so much of it was not what was in it, but how it looked, mm-hmm. you know? Yes, this whole process of yeah. making something look really nice. Oh, if it looks nice, and therefore it's 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 great. Well, if yeah, that way nobody. Hey, that that is a serious looking report, yeah, and they'll that's be really good. They'll that's be really serious. Happy with the cover. So it, we have nicknames for some of our bills, and and that that document reduction uh, HB one eighty seven. Its nickname is Office Space uh, because it, I don't know if you remember that movie. Oh, sure, I, one of my favorite movies. Yeah. Well. Uh, the TPS reports. And, and so w- when I introduced the, the bill on the floor, I said, we, uh, office dwellers, cubicle dwellers, oh. everywhere, I, I have a bill for you. And then I explained what it did. And I, I have nine different bosses. When I make a mistake, I have nine people telling me I, I fucked up. Well, well that, that's the body of legislation that we're doing. It, most of it is around uh, those type of improvements. You know, can we, can we get more value-added activity? Can we trim a little here? Not so much trim in the terms of cut, but seek greater efficiency. And then you, you uh, liberate resources that can maybe be used somewhere else, or if you can just spend less, that's great too. So one thing I've observed, whether it's the state government or the city government, you have a mayor and you have a governor and you have people in these departments or, or parts of government. And I mean, I've, people have told me this before. They say these kind of career type people that have been there for 10 or 20 years, they say, well, uh, yeah, fuck it. They're going to be gone in a couple of years. So I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. And, Mm-hmm. And I think that's probably a real issue. And I don't know how you solve that. I don't know how to, but there's, there's entrenched and I hate that kind of term deep state. Cause I think it has other, other meanings, but there is a core of people in government that have been there a long time that have their ways or their methods of doing things. And um, I, don't, I don't know how to re- alleviate that, but I, I believe that is a, a problem in, in all governments. Well, it, in a big company, you know, where, where I was trying to sell quality, you had to sell it. Um, that there had to be an advocate for it. And, and I should say too, it's also, I worked in a big company and this problem also exists in big companies. Well, that's it's what, not just, you know, unique to governments. That's where I was going. It's, it's big organizations and heck it's little ones too. You know, they can be rigid, you know, rigid for good reasons, bad reasons, whatever. I, the real trick that I found with some of these things, if you're coming in and you're, you're offering um, the opportunity to make changes that could make things work better is to make sure that you have feedback from the people that are on the front lines. And, yes. And that's, remember those strategic plans. That's where we want to start getting that, that feedback, uh, you know, coming. Um, you have a chief exec comes in and he's got a direction he wants to march. 
And, but what you really need is accurate feedback coming uh, from down the, the command chain that's saying, hey, well, to do this, we need that. And that's where you start finding out, you know, where the weak links are in being able to achieve the high-level objectives. So you've got to connect those two. So you get that feedback loop going. I watched one of these, uh, you ever see the Undercover Boss? No. So it's these, this show where these bosses or these owners of these big companies will go and, be, you know, apply for a yeah, job. Or, I, I've basically, seen a little bit. They get in disguise and they show up and... and sometimes like, disguise, sometimes it's such a big company that the people wouldn't even know who the, you know, maybe who the person was. But there was one and, and um, I forget the bit, it was a clothing, retail. Anyways, the, the boss basically realized that there was all these problems going on and, and the front, you know, the front line mm-hmm. with the rank and file that he didn't, you know, even realize. And once he saw all this stuff, he, he kind of, it was, it was usually it's to kind of go and find people, you know, maybe messing around or doing bad. But he learned that there's all kinds of things he was unaware of that he had to go and fix just by being exposed to the day-to-day frontline operations of the business. And I feel like in government, sometimes the leaders aren't that exposed to the day-to-day. And it's hard to do that, but... Um, there's when there's a disconnect like you're talking about and you don't talk to people who are doing it every day then it's hard to from the top you know make a change that if you're not aware of what maybe is even happening yeah if if you get elected to be governor and and you're thrust into having to run the state um you have very little time to that what you're talking about a simple version that is called management by walking around um where you just go out if, if you're a manager of a of a construction or a fabrication thing. You go out to the job site, you walk around, you make yourself available. And in practice, uh, without wearing disguises or all that, but in practice, what happens, you have to do that more rather than less in order for people to start to trust you and think that you are interested in what the frontline operations are experiencing. And not, not just the photo op. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, not, it, can't, it can't be that. And that's the other thing. Um, quality management and continuous improvement really requires a kind of a change of heart. And it requires building trust, and so you, it, it's an inter- it's a fascinating thing to have been involved in for a career of kind of learning how you can make adjustments and you can build consensus and start to get people agreeing. Um, you talked about incentives earlier; they don't always have to be dollar incentives. Sometimes people are just so frustrated with their job that mm-hmm. if they had a chance to just fix that annoying thing, you know, the TPS report is emblematic of that yeah if they could just get that fixed then their day would be better and they, they would be more productive they'd be happier and uh they they might stick around whereas otherwise they're looking for the next opportunity to get out of a bad situation other thing too whether it's business or government or military with with leaders especially in big organizations you have to you have to be able to delegate and put in good people to, to below you to, to you know whether it's commissioners or whether it's you know vice presidents or directors or you know, officers, I mean, you have to have good people below you. And, and I think that's, that's a real problem sometimes with government. You know, you get somebody in there who puts in not good people. And that, yeah. that, that kind of trickles down to all the way to the bottom. It, it's a problem in the private sector, too. You know, it's, I, I've been on, you know, if you're on a multi-billion dollar project that's ramping up brand new, you're gathering people from all over and you're crashing them into a team and you, you don't always have time to pick people that you, you really know, you know, can do the job or do it in a way that's, uh, that's beneficial. And so it, it's a challenge in the, you know, in the private sector. It, it's got a special challenge, I guess, in the, in the public sector. It's, we're, we're challenged to get good people, uh, you know, that, that are competent 
and want to show up and do the job in, in all sectors right now. So I, I think you, we're going to feel it everywhere. Yeah, I, mean, I was joking yesterday. I was at bowling, and I've only been here since 2019. I, before that, I was involved in, in politics, so I kind of had a sense of who people were and who was working for who. But I, mean, I go in some of these offices now. I just don't. I mean, half the people I've never seen them before. Yeah, huge turn. All these new people. I said, who who are they? Where, yeah. are, they, where are they from? Yeah, and a lot of people have left the legislature and gone to other jobs. I mean, the, the problem with the private sector right now, the, the wages are going up because there's a shortage of people and, and all, I mean, just all kinds of, all, all sectors. Yeah, it's tough. And, and like for the legislature, staff is incredibly important. I mean, the, the job that our staffers do is they're just the unsung heroes. The, there's a ton of work that just goes, you know, you, for, for people that, that don't know about all this, uh, the staffers are grinding away, uh, you know, achieving the higher level objectives. So, you know, the, the representative senators that they kind of know a direction they want to go in, but um, all the staff that is, is just furiously working away mm-hmm. and they really work uh, in the Capitol. They do. Yeah. And, and, and I've, I've long said this and with legislators, it's, it's quote unquote citizen legislature, but uh, oh, we have a car alarm going off. Great. I hope, hope they resolve that. Um, hey, they did. Yeah. Quickly. Uh, it's it's a quote unquote citizen legislature, but it's it's really not. And you know you're retired, so you're you're in one of the you know good positions where you don't have a. Full, I mean, I don't think you work right now. You don't have a full time job, do you? No, I'm. This is a twelve hour full time job. You know, twelve hours a day full time job for and, me. And that's what I think it should be for everybody. I think the rate pay should go way up. It should hundred and fifty thousand no per diem, and that's kind of your gig. Because right now, I mean, I'm sure you talk to your colleagues, ones with jobs or families or kids. It's it's just in Juneau and flying back and forth and all the far from your district. It's a huge state. I don't know what you think, but I, I think it should be a full-time job and raise the pay. Yeah. The, the kind of a more professional legislature. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, there could be reforms like that. You know, you have to, you have to look at the total package of what you're, what you're paying and what you're getting for it. Um, but I know for a lot of the folks that are here, it's not easy because they do have other businesses that actually help put food on the table. And, and they have to juggle all of that. It's not easy for them. So this bill you introduced, it was this year, you gave me the sheet in February. So it's uh, probably going to be tough. It's the second session and, and you're in the minority, which obviously has a, that has an impact on how legislation moves. And what, what do you, what's your hope for the, for the bill? I mean, it's still in the house, isn't it? It hasn't passed the house. No. Uh, well, I've, I've got two big pieces of legislation. The, kind the strategic of, one we talked about. Before. Yeah. So we got the, the, the uh, Executive Budget Act rewrite, and then also have a spending cap based on our GDP, so private sector-based spending cap for state government. Um, and so those two are very big concepts that will take work and time, I suspect, although uh, I just had a hearing on the Executive Budget Act, uh, you know, strategic plans of state government in the uh, uh, Ways and Means Committee. So uh, we had a, a good hearing on it, and folks were you know, they're kind of struggling to, to, to get the thing in their head. And so we, but we had a good conversation, like nearly two hours. It was a, a long hearing. And so on the spending cap, I've had about six hours worth of hearings so far uh, in, on the House side. And it's also being moved. It's sitting with uh, the Senate um, finance in, a, in the Senate. So the version over there that Rob Myers is carrying. So uh, these are big pieces of legislation that are going to take time for people to understand. So I expect it to be a multi-year project. Yeah, so the frustration is when you introduce a bill the second year, when this legislature, when this session ends, that's that's it. 
Whereas last year, if something was introduced, it, it carries over to the second session. So, yeah, well, we'll reintroduce. I, I plan on being back. So your spending cap is different than a lot of people have promoted all kinds of different spending caps, but you said it's GDP based. Yeah. It, it, so spending caps are, are composed of, of what you measure as a reference and then um, what you include in it. And so uh, with our spending cap, what I was looking for was a mechanism that would keep government spending linked with our private sector, the health of our private sector economy. So what we did is took a factor of our local, our state GDP minus government spending um, on a five-year trailing average and just pins a percentage that you can spend to fund government. And the idea is that not so much that that really like drastically cuts our spending, but just that it creates kind of a, a moderating um, ebb and flow of spending relative to the economy. So that way we're not getting unhinged from the economy with what we spend. Now, earlier you, you said you never really took a position on the PFD and you're, you're not, you're not one that I hear really promoting a 50, 50 or a full PFD. I haven't really heard you say too much about it, but right now we're looking at likely a surplus with the price of oil rising and a lot of people are advocating for, you know, full PFDs or 50-50 PFDs. Now there's an energy rebate they're talking about, $1,300. But I think a lot of folks forget we owe the CBR, the Constitutional Budget Reserve, $13 billion, which isn't, there's no penalty, there's no interest, but the if you take money out of that, you got to put it back. What's your thought about if we have a surplus, the first one in 10 years, how much of that needs to go back and pay the CBR and build up the reserves, and how much of it needs to go out in the form of a dividend or, or an energy rebate, which is kind of a... A way yeah. to be tricky with the dividend for this year, I think. It, I, I, I think, you know, if you're going to, uh, with the, the systems we have, if you're going to hand money out, you ought to just call it a, a PFD. And as far as the ratio of what is in the PFD versus what, uh, you know, of the, of the spending that we're going to do, of, or savings, as it were, putting money in the CBR, I don't have that, that financial breakdown right now, kind of waiting to see what all the numbers look like. And then uh, what I'll do to help decide uh, where I sit on it all is look at, you know, the fiscal model that we produce with those latest numbers and, and take a look at it and try and figure out what the best thing is to do. Your district, the, the hillside area, is not a district where, you know, people are that concerned with the PFD because the incomes are higher. Other districts, people are much more concerned with it. It's an issue. But for you, I mean, I think you, you probably, am I, wrong, am I right that you have the freedom to kind of, you can kind of, your people aren't going to get mad at you if you... Well, over a smaller PFD. I, I got elected by saying that I, I thought we had to reform uh, government in it, likening our where we're at to a company that had managed uh, mismanaged to the degree that we couldn't spin off a dividend like we used to be able to. So we we've all seen companies that are, you know, pay a big dividend, but then they fall on rocky times and they they cut it. So I said, I think that's where we're at. I think we can do better. Um with more predictable budgets and more controlled spending and more, uh, say, productive processes in government, we can improve that. I know it'll take time, but in the end, I think we'll have better economic health all around. So if, if we worry about just the dividend and we forget about building up our private sector, there's a couple thousand dollars at stake a year in a dividend there could be a, a livable wage, you know, a salary if if we can open up our economy. And the yeah, way I mean, thirteen, even three thousand dollars—that's nothing compared to a good-paying job, right? And, and what I've what I've I'm actually working on an article now about 
kind of our, we're our own worst enemy, you know, and we have this, you know, this bridge, which people have kind of joked about, but I mean, right now the house, the average house price in Anchorage is over $400,000. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a bridge right now we could build to Kinnick Arm, which would open up a huge amount of land and housing, but people, you know, different reasons are against that. We have this Usitna-Watana Dam, this Juno Road, which would take a lot of pressure off the ferry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pika is a development that they're fighting with Conoco and oil search and they can't, we got the interior gas. We have all these projects that would do great things for the economy and for the private sector and for housing prices. But we, and you know, we're fighting over like how much money we get, how much, a couple thousand dollars we get when, like if, if we built the bridge, I think it's a billion dollars. I mean, think about what that would do for housing and, and for access to more land for Anchorage. And we, we could, we could build that. We could, we could do that, but we just fight about, you know, small things a lot. That. That's an important thing. I, I think we've overlooked the great potential that that is all around us, and we're we're letting division keep us from doing things that, you know, I, I think are so much bigger. Um, so the, if you have a, a GDP based spending limit, the government is more linked to our GDP performance, mm-hmm. and therefore they have an interest in it. And one reason I crafted it that way is is the concern that as the permanent fund continues to grow. And if the state should uh, choose to use more and more of it to fund government, you know, so it continues to grow, it gets to what I call critical mass, where about all the needs of government are funded from that. It won't have a care for any of the things that you're talking about, any resource what, development. What is our GDP? I don't even know. Is it $50 billion or something? Just... Yeah, I, I don't have the number off the top of my head. Uh, what I'm used to looking at are these fractions of it for the purpose mm-hmm. of the bill. Um, so what would, the under the bill, what would the, I guess, amount of spend be? Well, the, the way we calibrated it at, at 11.5% uh, of, of, of statutory is right at where we were spending in 22. We just, we just pinned the, the so button. Like four and a half billion? Or? Yeah, right at status quo spending. And so now we're going to be a little bit above that. But, of course, our GDP is going up. Although you have that moderating effect of the five-year trailing average. So just like the 5% POMV, creates that moderating effect on what you're pulling out of the fund at any one time. Um, the, the trailing average in the, in the GDP base cap does the same thing. And the POMV, it's interesting because it, it's a five-year average of the balance, whereas the formula for the dividend has been a five-year average of the, re, of the return. So this year, the, the POMV is a little over $3 billion. Next year, because the fund's gotten, it's grown, um, it's $3.3 billion. So, you know, we're getting more out of the, permanent fund for the draw. We have basically, especially now with the price of oil, uh, some people measure it at no dividend. We have a huge surplus. Yeah, it's it's a great time for us to have had the cap. Um, if you go to my website, uh, akrepkaufman.com, that's K-A-U-F-M-A-N, um, I've got the spending cap, the, the model of it and the graphs and charts and all the supporting documents there. And it, if you get a chance, take a look at mm-hmm. that. Um, I've always been kind of hesitant about a spending cap because I, I just, you know, you, you hit to kind of if something happens and what are the exceptions. But also I'm right now looking at a time when we're looking at a surplus again. And this happened 2008, 2009. You know, the prices of oil in the early 2000s were pretty low. It shot up. It went to 1.150 almost and huge windfall. Mm-hmm. And money was saved, which was really good because it weathered this time when there was deficits. But, but the budget really increased a lot at, at that time. And now yes. it's gone down. It's been the operating budget's been... I think at its peak it was over six billion. Now we're you know four over four four and a half. So my concern now, and the spending cap would would 
you know, resolve that is if we do get a big windfall, there's going to be so much pressure to, you know, in, increase spending. Right. No, you feel it already. Um, if you, if you look at the chart that we've got on the, on the website, what you'll see is uh, modeling that starts at 2003 and we, we started there and you see where um, the spending goes above what the proposed statutory and, and, uh, constitutional cap would be now our old constitutional cap is just flying up in the breeze it it's mm-hmm. it's it's a perfect rule in that you can never break it yeah <laughs> <laughs> and so so the other ones are down there and you'll see where where the spending bands cross those lines uh it would have been about 18 billion dollars swept forward according to the statutory limit and about three uh retained under the constitutional and what that does in those lean years, it prevents overspending on capital projects, which when we spend too much, we don't spend wisely. You know, we may put money into things that don't really return value. And then the other thing that we do, we create, we uh, aggravate our boom-bust cycle. Well, yeah, 10 years ago, I mean, those big capital budgets were $2 billion. And then after the whole deficit and the price of oil crash, we were down to $100 million or, you know, I mean, it's just wild to think about two billion dollars getting put out there in the whoo yeah. oh three to 13 somewhere in there i think it was if you average it i may be off on this but it was like 10 billion dollars and then at the end of all that spending like in 2013 they had an assessment done and we got a c or a d in infrastructure so it's like what what did we mm-hmm. do with all of it and you know you can spend a lot of money on paper well, um, a, lot, a lot of it a lot of it the money was there it was going to things like i mean i don't know the breakdown but it was going to nonprofits or groups or different i mean it wasn't it was quote unquote capital but it wasn't what you and i think of like a bridge or a road or a ferry or something yeah. it was going to weird real kind of infrastructure maybe you know things that are not we don't consider infrastructure so well the the cap is designed to not really be like a, a radical cap it's designed to be a moderating um, control mechanism that just prevents those the worst behavior mm-hmm. and and by doing that it's kind of like preventing uh binge eating you know so you may do fine all day, every day, except for when you get that bucket of ice cream. And so it's designed to just prevent those peaks. That's why you got to get that. If you really got a problem, you get that stomach operation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, th- this is kind of that. Um, but, oh, you but, can't eat anymore. I mean, you just can't but, do it. But I, I think you'll be interested in it. So uh, there's a spending cap tab there. And there's okay, also, got also got the Executive Budget Act tab on the website, and it, it explains all of it. And so these are two big pieces. But then we have little things that we're doing, uh, like an action tracker. an an improvement action tracker. So to create a standardized action tracker across all of our state agencies so that if you're working on an improvement, which improvements can be caused by something going wrong or where you see something could have gone wrong or you just know you can do something better. And then you just log it in there. And then now that creates a home for that improvement opportunity to be tracked. And action tracker. Yeah. It's well, I like that action tracker. Yeah. And it, it's a tool. It's like one of the core tools of a continuous improvement program is to have an action tracker. And, and so little bills like that bills to reduce documentation that we don't need. Um, you know, the publications reports and all of that. Uh, and then heck what, what else we've got? Um, oh, license plate bill. So, um, we were working on a license plate bill for fallen police officers. We call that one Remember the Fallen, and uh, that's on the website too. But while working on that, it dawned on us, you know, it's really crazy um, to take literally an act of Congress to do a specialty license plate. So what if we just take that responsibility for managing that and just push it down in the DMV? 
where mm-hmm. if somebody has, you know, there's the, the management authority to, to get that design, to work out that design with the people that want it and, and approve it, that can exist down there. So why, why spend an entire legislative uh, process to pass uh, some little change in a design to a license yeah. plate? and have to get the governor to sign it. That just seemed crazy. So we did our bill to remember the fallen police officers. And then after learning what it took to do that, and then it was like, heck, well, let's, let's look at revising the process to maybe not make it so hard for the next time. A lot of weird bills where people look at them and they go like, why are they doing that? You know, you, you have to, to do something sometimes very simple. Yeah. Well, yeah. The theme with, with everything that we're doing, uh, just about everything is around uh, simplification efficiency, you know, they're quality management oriented bills uh, based on my background. For a long time, I've said the, the biggest irony maybe is to, to remove or to eliminate a law. You have to pass a bill. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the, the irony runs deep in the Capitol, but it, it, um, it, it's the way it is for a reason. Um, you know, we don't want to run around and make decisions, you know, uh, no, it's set up. Yeah, it. exactly. It's set up to not, you know, things should move slow because, if they if they could just happen like that, then you know, yeah, it's weird, it's weird weird or bad the bad things could happen. It's functionally dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. So so last thing you filed for re-election, and there's this new election system in place the the single primary and then the ranked choice. Right. Um, you have a very interesting one of your opponents. I don't know if you go on Twitter ever or read our stuff, but this uh, Jennifer San, she seems to be a. Uh, Writing you a lot of potential content for the for the campaign. Yeah, I've I've heard about that, <laughs> and, and uh, <laughs> woo, <laughs> yeah, and and so well, I'm gonna I'll be me and and I'll do me and and uh, and we'll we'll see how it turns out. But um, I am planning on on a you know really working hard and uh, doing the same thing I did last time, only better with everything I learned in the last election. So far, I think it's just you and her. Maybe did one other person file, or is it just? I'm not aware of anybody, might but be, might be just you and her. Yeah. So I, I, what I've said is a lot of these state house races and some state Senate races, I think might only have four people four three or four people. So in that case, the primary is kind of not even, it's a formality. You don't need to I mean, really worry about it. Mm-hmm. If there's five or, or six or seven, then you have to start worrying about it more. But if it's only four people and we, you know, we're about what we're coming up on almost April. So a few, you know, two and a half months before mm-hmm. the deadline. So, yeah, I was hoping for the deal that that uh, Laddie Shaw had last time around, where nobody ran. <laughs> that was so. You know, Chris Tuck. A few people have had that over the years, and, and yeah. I ran against. I ran for the Senate in twelve, and initially I was running for the House, and I switched, and somebody else ran against Tuck. Um, but the next year, he had the same deal: no primary, no general. Yeah. And there's been a handful over the years of you know every year there's a few people that just kind of coast. I mean, they got they got nothing. Yeah, that would be nice. I don't I don't think it's good. I I think it's good to have a challenge. So. I'll be, I'll be happy to. It, it either means people really love you or they just don't give a shit. I yeah. mean, this, all right, well, this, we got them. That's yeah, what we, whatever. That's what we got. Yeah. So the Jennifer, it's interesting. The Jennifer San, um, who I've gotten to on Twitter, she seems to really have gone after me. And I don't know if you've, how you, much you've. You two have a special relationship. We, we do. I've never met her. I've never met her. But she last year filed and she was running against Laddie Shaw. Right. And she was very vocal about it. And on Twitter and I, I started seeing her pop up. And, and at one point I just said something like, maybe you should wait and see how redistricting goes. You know, you, you might end up somewhere else. It's no one knows. And then some of her crazy, you know, friends or people were like saying, Oh, you like mansplaining white man. I said, what the hell? I said, I'm just saying, I mean, <laughs> no one knows where they're. And in fact, 
She ended up in your so 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 Laddie got you know he got rid of her and so yeah, now you now you've got her. That's worth explaining through redistricting. So in, yeah, in in the redistricting process, I ended up with uh, some of my old district and a, a lot of Laddie Shaw's, um, and uh, along with it came the, the competitor that <laughs> Mr. Lansfield is talking about. And that can still change too. We have these these litigation ongoing, and the judge made a ruling on the superior court, but now it's going to the Supreme Court. So. There's still some chance that could. This happened in 2012. They, they, they couldn't even figure it out by the time it was the deadline. So they, they, they had an interim map for 2012 election, but then they changed it again in 2014. Mm-hmm. So it's really up in the air as far as what's gonna, you know, how things are gonna look. But I, I think the house maps aren't gonna change much. I mean, it's possible they could change though. I think there could be some, and but I, I feel pretty solid about uh, District 11F uh, that I'm in now. That's another thing that changed. Uh, and it, that may be another area that sees some differences, the pairings, right? So the Senate pairings with the mm-hmm. House. So you, you have two House seats to every Senate seat. So I was paired with Roger Holland, and now I'm paired with Josh Revac. So that's right, a, yeah, another those, difference. Those can, I mean, I, it was funny when they were doing the Senate pairings, which the judge ru- ruled, the Superior Court judge ruled, that they kind of didn't take enough public input, which really isn't a requirement. I mean, I don't think they require constitutionally public input, but they, sh- they should have public input, and that's important. The House maps had a lot of public input. The Senate ones, they did very quickly at that, at that redistricting meeting. In the first iteration of it, I was in an open Senate district. And so I kind of jokingly, it's, uh, it's not the reason, but I tweeted, I said, holy God, I'm in an open. And then the next day, they changed it. <laughs> we must fix that. And I was no longer in an open Senate district. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, no comment on that. Um, but I, I feel... Um, I'm quite happy with my new district. I love my old one, but this one is... What, what, cha- what changed for you? Um, well, I, I had, uh, you know, South Anchorage all the way down to Girdwood. And, and that's a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of big, you know, acreage property yeah. and all that. It's a real, it's a lot of work to, to try and get to those doors. And I, I, I love the district. It, it's a pretty neat feeling that, hey, you know, this is my district and you have all the, you know, the glory that you got and all the way down to Girdwood. Um, but when we redistricted, um, I ended up with everything uh, north of Huffman and then south of Abbott. So I've got that rectangular block that, that starts at Seward Highway and runs mm-hmm. so, and runs up the hillside, up to the park. So much, it, much, more, much more compact. It's a lot more compact. And, and uh, yeah, so it, it's, it's going to be easier to represent. Um, easier to campaign in, and, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So so once you're done with the session, and I think a lot of people mostly agree it's going to be the 120 again, so May, mm-hmm. and then you have to, you know, at that point go right into the cam- campaign mode. So you're going to be spinning up another campaign for summer and fall. So that's going to be... Yeah, yeah, no rest for the, the weary, right? How's but, your wife? Is she liking this, or what's her take on all this? She she likes it. Um, uh, Nancy's interesting. She... Uh, you know, she likes the challenge and she, she digs in hard with me on these campaigns. And so what, what I've told people, you know, that, you know, asked me about my plans or whatever, I said, well, I'll keep doing this until Nancy tells me she won't, won't help me anymore. That's tough. You know, when the, when the spouse isn't on board, it becomes very, very, very hard. So, well, uh, we had a dog that was quite old and he passed and that was keeping us separate. So now she's able to come down with me. So I'm going to fly home, uh, later tonight and go to the night flight. Yeah, well, me too. All right, so I'll see. I'll see you on there. Um, are you going back and forth a lot? Or I know some people try to, but other people just maybe once a month or a couple, once every two weeks. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, pretty moderate. Um, I, 
I, I tend to be here in, um, even in the Capitol on the weekends a lot just because of, I want to work on things. I've seen you in there. I've been in the weekends a couple of times and I've seen you in. Yeah, I get uh, teased a lot for, you know, for overdoing it, but, <laughs> but it's okay. It's, you know, not everybody gets to do this and it's a pretty amazing thing to, to find yourself representing a, a district. It's nice being in Anchorage compared to people even in Fairbanks or even further Nome or, you know, Kenai Peninsula to go back to Anchorage. It's a flight. You're there. Yeah. It's a, but to go to Fairbanks or somewhere else, it's another flight and it's much more. So it's a little bit lucky being in Anchorage. It's a quick, quick flight. And that's one thing, um, you know, you talked before my being retired, so I don't have the distractions of a business and, you know, Nancy and I, we have a pretty simple life. It's just the two of us, the dog's gone. So she's portable, I'm portable. We don't have to worry about a business or a, a job or anything like that. So we can pretty much dedicate ourselves to, you know, to doing this now. You see, and, they just extended this freaking mask mandate on the airplanes for another no, month. Oh, no. They just did, it was March 18th. I, I thought for sure they're going to stop, you know, end it. Now they've extended it for another month to April 18th, oh, TSA. I, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, I'm very, I'm livid. Yeah. I, I was, I was very involved in petitioning my government uh, locally with the capital mask mandate, which I thought was, especially tor- towards after a few weeks, it got to be ridiculous when Ju- the city of Juneau, uh, more or less ended theirs. It was kind of crazy to be all masked up, uh, you know, officially. And then you go out and you're, you're out at a bar, yeah, or, like, you know, and you know, I'm not often out at the bars, but when I do, I, and then you see all the same people unmasked and, or, or, or some of these events at the Centennial hall or yeah. any of these, you know, receptions, it's like they all, they're all masked up in the cat and then they come down and it's like not yeah. one mask. No. And I thought, well, come on, let's just get real about it. And, and just, it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, we're getting closer to making sense now that you, you kind of ruined my day. I was, I was hoping for that ban uh, to stop. They announced it, I think yesterday I saw, so I was, I couldn't believe it. I thought for sure they're going to, because at this point with this Russia stuff and, you know, going on, it's all over the news. I mean, I mean, where's Dr. Fauci? I mean, they don't even talk about COVID on, on the news anymore. Yeah. It's, well, it's like before it was everything COVID all, all the time. And now it's, now it's all the Russia stuff. And, I'm worried about Dr. Fauci. I haven't seen him for a few weeks. Well, I think the powers that be decided it's time to move on from the whole COVID narrative. Let, let's go work, you know, some other ones. Well, some I, just, ones. I just, I mean, the last thing for me is these airplanes. I really hate, I've been very vocal about this. I, I think it's so, because you take it off to have a drink or to eat. And then you go to the airport restaurant and everybody's mad. It's like, and then you go to the airplane and oh my gosh, put the mask on. Yeah. And then you walk out in the rest of the world and everything's normal. It's, it's odd. It is very odd. Well, Rip Kaufman, thanks for coming in. It was a good, good talk. We uh, normally do 30 minutes, but we're, Coming up in an hour here. So oh my goodness, good, how do good. we do that? Just so. you know, time flies when you're talking about spending caps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> budget, executive budget. I, act. I'm afraid we put some of your listeners to sleep, but that- no, it's good to talk. I mean, this good, these are things that most people don't. That's one of the flaws in thinking of people in the legislature is they think that everybody lives and breathes this shit, or like no, they don't know. Most people have no idea. They're going to work. They got a family. They have a job. So, uh, for the folks who don't want to watch the gavel, maybe do want to listen to somebody talk about it. It's, it's good to, you know, for the people interested, but for the most part, most people are not following any of this stuff. Yeah. It's, it's tough to have a full life and, and also keep track of what's going on down here. So I think I saw the, um, it was, uh, it was Australian comedian blanking on his name, but he gave this uh, stand up bit a couple of years ago. And he's like, he's like, you know, something's wrong. When I know everybody's name, I know all the people's names. I don't want to know anybody's name. That's a bad sign. You know, yeah, It's a bad sign when I can name everybody yeah. in the government. I, well, I don't want to do that. Maybe that'll be a sign of success. If I can walk through the, the grocery store in my neighborhood and people don't say hi, you mm-hmm. know, and 
It was J- Jim Jeffries. Yeah, he did the stand-up bit where he was talking about the kind of the, the stuff after Trump and all this stuff was going on. And he's like, oh, I don't want to know the Secretary of Interior. Like, I don't want to know the Secretary of Commerce. I don't want to know that. <laughs> That's good. Good stuff. I, I just wanted to repeat that website if I could. Sure. Um, yeah. AKRepKaufman.com. That's K-A-U-F-M-A-N. And that's where uh, some of this legislation I've been talking about, I've got explainer videos for, for the two big ones, the Executive Budget Act and the spending cap, and uh, and all, all the documents uh, that we produce to support the bill and explain it. So there's lots of information there. Okay, well, I'll see you on the uh, – thanks for coming in again, Rep Kaufman. And yeah. They can check out the website, and I'll, I'll see you on the airplane tonight. Yeah, that's a deal. See you there. Appreciate you coming in. Uh, folks, uh, if, you, if you listen to us on any of the podcast platforms, give us a like or a good review. And if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Let's-